All right, well, good morning. We've got a lot to do, so we're going to jump in hot and heavy. So if you have a Bible, grab it and make your way to the book of Ephesians chapter 4. What has happened thus far is uh, when we come to chapter 4, Paul has shifted gears a little bit. So if you've been with us or if you haven't, I'll bring you up to speed real quick. Chapters 1 through 3 center around who we are in Christ. That's what Ephesians breaks down into two sections, 1 through 3 and 4 through 6. And 1 through 3 centers around who we are in Christ and focuses really on the vertical reconciliation we have with God through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And so who we are in Christ vertically, but then that's given feet horizontally in how he has reconciled humanity to one another in the church uh, around the cross of Jesus Christ. He has made those who are believers in Jesus Christ, one, we are brothers and sisters. So vertically reconciled, horizontally reconciled, who we are in Christ, chapters 1 through 3. And then as we come to chapters 4 through 6, it's really centered in on how we live that out. And so it began in chapter 4, uh, verses one with, verse 1, with walk in a manner worthy. And that's kind of a banner that Paul puts over the whole rest of the book. And then the whole rest of the book is going to be, you know, walk in a manner worthy in this sphere of life and in this sphere of life and in this sphere of life. And so that's where we're at. And we're in that very first one, that very first sphere he calls us to walk in a manner worthy is in the church. And he's just talked about how he's made us one. And now he's saying, hey, really live it out. And he breaks it down into kind of two spheres. And so we looked at one of them last week that we are to, uh, part of walking worthy in the church is maintaining the, the unity that he has created, and now we are called to maintain it. And so that's really verses 1 through 6 of chapter 4, and then verses 7 through 16 very much center in on like advancing now towards maturity, advancing towards maturity but it, but it's really interesting as you get into it and as we're going to see here in a few minutes he doesn't focus so much on the fact that we are to advance in maturity but but rather one of the biggest reasons as to how we are to do that one of the biggest factors in like how we are to advance and that how is through the gift of spiritual leadership that Christ has given to his church so that we might mature in Christ. That's the main point of this text, verses 7 through 16. And so we're going to, like as we see today, what that's going to mean is we boil it it down for us is is primarily like elders. And it's going to talk about you know, uh, apostles and prophets and evangelists, and we'll we'll deal with all that. But primarily, like specifically for us, it's the gift of elders, bishops, overseers, pastors, shepherds, all interchangeable words used throughout the New Testament. And so this morning, what we're going to see, main point that I'm going to be trying to show you this morning, is how God gave the gift of elders to his church so that she might mature in Christ. And so look again with me then at verse 7 that Tedra just read. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. And so again, talking about walking in a manner worthy, maintaining unity, 
now advancing in maturity. And so he begins in verse 7 very broadly talking about the fact that like, how we advance is, is through gifts that Christ gives to his church. And he says very plainly that you know each one of us, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Every single member of the church, every single follower of Jesus, believer in Christ, is given gifts and has a spiritual gift that aren't, it's not to terminate on you, but it's for the upbuilding of the body. That's what it exists for. And so every single person has one of these, and there's all kinds of, you know, different, uh, you know, different ones that are, that are given throughout the New Testament. But everyone is given one. And so as an illustration of the fact that these gifts are given, Paul makes and you know, connects to Psalm 68, which is a hymn of victory. And what he does is he applies this to Jesus. And so, so the point is, in Psalm 68, is you have a conquering king who has come and he's won a big victory and he's brought back the captives. Uh, he's made capture, he's brought them back, and then there's a big celebration. And so Paul applying this to Jesus, it's just that same imagery of a returning king brought, bringing home the spoils of victory. And so Christ has descended uh, from heaven to the earth. That's his incarnation, what we celebrate at Christmas. And then through his life, his death, and his resurrection, he has won a decisive victory against sin and death. And he has now ascended back into heaven. Those are his captives. And now he gives gifts to his followers. Verse 7 again. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. And so each one of us has a gift. I want to make sure and stress that. Every single one of us. And there's a multiplicity of what these gifts look like. There's lists uh, throughout various places, Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, um, 1 Peter 4. There's various gifts that list out some of these, various lists that list out some of these gifts. But as we come to verse 11, he lists gifts that he gave to all believers. Right? It's not about like he gave a specific and singular gift to this believer, but verse 11 is talking about gifts that he gave to all believers. And so look at verse 11 with me. And he, Christ, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, one article there, it's one idea, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity, there's that word again, of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And so verse 11 again, note this. This gift that he gave, they're not like qualities. It's not characteristics. It's people. These gifts here are people. In, in particular, they're people with specific and special offices in the church. But all of these people, all of these offices have one overriding connection. And it's that they all are connected to the teaching function of the church. Every single one of these is connected to the teaching function of the church. 
And so according to Paul, if you want to see a church unified and mature, pray for the teaching function of the church. That's how it happens, largely. So pray for that. And so look at these offices again, these gifts that were given. First up, we've got apostles and prophets. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, but in the specific use of those terms as like offices, those are no longer in play today. They have all died. They have all ceased. The apostles were the disciples, the eyewitnesses of Jesus, and the prophets were probably their close associates. But they still serve the church today. How? Well, chapter 2, verse 20 says that the church was built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. And so, like, the foundation here, the foundation is the word of God. So these people, the apostles and prophets, they are the ones who wrote the Bible, and they gave it to us, so they still serve us. Next up, we have the evangelists. And modern missionaries are probably the closest thing to this idea of evangelists. But it's important for all of us to understand, all of us as believers have been called to evangelism. But yes, there are some people who are particularly gifted in that role. But then again, today, primarily, the the, the primary gift that he has given to the church in order for us to be aided towards maturity is shepherds and teachers. And really that's one term. Shepherds is the one time the noun form of the word pastor is used in the New Testament. It's used in verb form elsewhere. But this is the one place where it's used in the noun form. And it's one idea. It's the idea of an elder or a pastor or a bishop or an overseer. All these things are interchangeable terms. And as weird as it is for me to say this, because I feel like I'm almost campaigning for my own authority or something. From the word of God, we do need to understand and realize that like wherever you are a member of a church, your pastors and your elders are a gift from God to you, to the church. And he gave, verse 11, and Christ gave these things to the church to equip the saints. That is the church, right? And so they need to be received in that way. They need to be received in that way. Their instruction needs to be received as a gift. Their rebuke needs to be received from a, as a gift. Their counsel needs to be received as a gift. Because, dear friends, Jesus does not give gifts that we don't need. He gave elders to the church. And so, number one in your notes, I just want to call your attention to verse 11. And number one in your notes, let's look at the gift of of faithful eldership. The gift of faithful eldership. Again, like wherever you attend church, you should receive your pastors and your elders as a gift from God. And some of you may be like, well, God, can I get a receipt? I want to send that thing back. I want to get an exchange, right? Some of you may, I mean, that may be the way you feel. Let me make sure you understand the kind of gift we're talking about here. And so it's kind of like on Christmas morning, right? Elders may not be the gift that like on Christmas morning you you were excited to give, but it's more like the gift 
of socks that grandma gives you, not because you want them, but because you need them. That's the kind of gift that God has given here. So elders, yeah, you think about your pastors, you think about your elders. We are the, maybe not the most attractive things, but the very much needed socks of the church that you always need. And God doesn't give gifts that we don't need. He's smart like grandma, gives you what you need. And so he gave these to the church. And members of Providence in particular, I hope during this weird time of COVID-19, you've seen on display the gift and how the elders of of this church have been a gift. Like removing myself from the six men for just a second. These five guys have just been everywhere. I mean, all of you should have been received a phone call at least once or, or communication at least once. Some of you, you know, a lot more than that. And there's prayer meetings every single day. And there's stuff for preschool and elementary and adults and students. And constant care and phone calls behind the scenes that are happening. I mean, just a gift of this multiplicity of elders has been such a gift to the church. been a gift to my own soul. I am so thankful that the Lord saw fit to give to this church. Steve and Chad and Jeff and Jeff and John. As a gift to this church to help us towards maturity. And so the gift of faithful eldership. And then number, number two, let's look at like what we're to do then. The task of faithful eldership. And so if the gift is explained in verse 11, the task is explained in verse 12. So look at that with me. We'll start with 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. And so again, number two, the task of faithful eldership. And specifically, it's to equip the whole church for works of ministry, all right, service, and for the building up of the body. And the way that pastors, the way that we the elders equip you is largely through four ways. And so you can write these down. Teaching, tending, modeling, and leading. Okay? Teaching, tending, modeling, and leading. And so teaching. Again, all these you know, spiritual leadership positions in verse 11 have that teaching function in them. And this is very much what elders are to do. It's why it says the one difference between elders and deacons is the ability to teach. You have to be able to teach. And so pastors and elders are to feed the flock. I mean, just practically, what happens if you don't eat? You starve, right? And so you should be fed. And that is largely like my job and the elder's job is to help feed you. And now listen, you should read the Bible on your own. Amen. You should read good books on your own. Amen. You should listen to far better preachers on podcasts and be benefited by that. Amen. But nothing can replace the gathering around God's word with his family, even simultaneously right now, looking at the same passage and being talked to by elders and preachers and pastors who love you and know you and are in the same sphere that you are in the trenches with you contextually with you that can't be replaced who have been given charge by god to shepherd your soul 
And so that's why Paul, in his letter to Timothy, an elder at the church of Ephesus, writes, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil. And in chapter 4, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who's the judge, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. And so, yes, teaching, tending, modeling, leading, but what you need first and foremost from your elders, and then from me in particular as the primary pulpit preacher, is to love the word and preach the world and herald it to you even when you don't want to hear it. Which means I'm going to make you mad at times. And I'm not trying to, and you're not actually mad at me. If I'm being a faithful preacher, you're mad at the word. And so I'm to preach it when you want to hear it and when you don't want to hear it. Teaching. But also, elders are to equip the church for every member ministry, right? For maturity by tending to the sheep. And so like a shepherd, we know what's going on. We tend the sheep. We care for the sheep. We look after the sheep, okay? Elders bandage their wounds. They take them and walk them through sticky situations. And sometimes they pick them up on their shoulders and carry them through that situation, and in order to do all of that well, there has to be a two-way street of communication between elders and the flock. We can't read minds, right? There's got to be a two-way street of communication so that we can help feed you and guard you and tend you. Like personally knowing what's going on in your life. Knowing you, being known by you, and watching over your soul as a shepherd watches over his sheep and knows how they're doing. And where one's struggling, he's going to give it a little bit more time according to what it needs. So if it's, a, if it's a broken leg, that's one thing you're going to do to care for that. If it's a sheep that's prone to wandering off, that's another thing you're going to do to care for that sheep. It's going to look different. But shepherds are to tend, they're to care, they're to love. They're also to model, and praise God, it's not like modeling. I mean, you've seen our motley crew of elders, right? So praise God for that, but like example setting example setting we're to give an example of continuous growth and maturity not perfection right so while we are shepherds we're also sheep so we are sinners as well but a continuous path of growing in maturity we're to be examples from this text itself in verse two humility gentleness patience bearing with one another in love Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. I mean, our joy is, our job is very much First uh, Peter chapter 5. Listen to these words. So I exhort, Peter's writing, the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, 
but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And so we are to teach, we are to tend, we are to model, and then finally we are to lead. And Peter just even listed it. We are to exercise oversight. And what he's getting at there is the idea of authority. And, and a lot of people around us are absolutely terrified by authority. Why? Well, because many people have been abused by authority and therefore they recoil against it in all forms today. And so that's, that's there very much. But also there's just, some of it's just a sinful rebellion and, and pride. I'm not going to have anybody over me. But whatever camp you may fall in, I want, you to, I want you to notice that every single time the idea of authority is vested in elders in scripture it's always for the benefit of the congregation in ephesians 4 authority so that equip build up mature first peter 5 or even if you get real specific with the most pointed example in hebrews 13 17 where it says obey your leaders and submit to them Every time this authority is called out, it's always for the well-being of the congregation. Because that passage in Hebrews continues, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls. And then it's those who will have to give an account, which is frightening. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So they want this to be a good thing that is of advantage, like... The author of Hebrews wants this to be a good thing so that it is of advantage to you. You're to obey and submit because they're keeping watch over your souls. Something good for you. So it's always for the benefit of the congregation. So the authority of an elder is not about self-serving. It's about the well-being of the congregation. It is always living for others. It's what it's supposed to be. And so it's sort of like a school teacher. You think about the authority of a second grader, a second grade teacher. I don't see a whole lot of people being like, well, that second grade teacher is just on a power trip. You know, no, no, no. She got into that role so that, or because she loves kids and wanted to serve them. Now, sure, there, there's going to be exceptions here or there, but that, that's the same way that it is for most, the vast majority of elders and pastors. They felt called of God. And they want to serve the church. They want to serve the Lord through His church for the benefit of the congregation. As ministers of the gospel, we live to equip others, to serve others, to edify others. Which in reality is how all of us are to live, right? We're all to do that. But pastors are called in particular to that and to give an example. In all the, all the authority that God has given to elders... It's for the benefit of the body. And so our jobs are to equip, to teach, to lend, or to teach. <laughs> we don't lend too much, I can tell you that. Cause another topic. Teach, tend, model, and lead. Now, does that mean that our elders are always going to get it right and always be perfect? <laughs> no. Like I said, we, while shepherds, are still sheep. We are still 
sinners. And so we're going to get it wrong at times. We're going to do things wrong. We're not going to carry out our ministry properly at times. We're going to botch it at times. But even when that happens, I pray that we would still serve as a model in how to repent and how to ask for forgiveness and in how to give forgiveness. I pray that we would lead in that as well. Show you what that looks like. So that's our calling. And that's what you should expect from us. To see the church equipped for ministry, for service, for the building up of the church. Which brings us to number three in our notes. And that's the goal of faithful eldership. The goal of faithful eldership. And so look at verse 13 with me. Let's start in verse 11 because it's one big thought. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and we're camping out on the shepherds and teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood. So here we go with maturity. To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And so it says, until we attain unity and maturity. Like, that's the goal. That's the goal. And so, if you're ever wondering, how can I pray for my church overall, like congregationally? Pray these things. That we would be united. That we would, grow, that we would mature. That to, ma- to mature manhood. Like, pray these things. These type of prayers for our church. And so Paul's saying, I mean, if you look at verse 13, until we attain, like we are going to attain full unity, perfect unity, perfect maturity in, big word, the eschaton, the end times, when Jesus comes again, new heavens and new earth, and all the sad things come untrue. That day is coming. That will happen. But until then, Paul is saying that we are to pursue these things. That we are to give evidence of ever increasing in these things. Until we, like, I mean, we must grow up in Christ. And we'll attain it someday, but in our churches right now, we're to give evidence of these two things. The unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. And so our unity that we talked about so much last week is grounded in this. We are to have a unity around the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And so we need to know it. We need to understand it. But then that second part, and of the knowledge of the Son of God, we we must believe it. So we need to know it, and we need to believe it. And so at Providence, we often describe this with the terms a true confessor, someone who really believes it, with a true confession. Like they, they, it's the faith, and they really believe it. And so like when someone's coming forward for membership, okay, anybody can attend Providence, anybody and everybody. We'd love to have more and more and more people. I'm so glad so many of you are tuning in and watching this. It's wonderful. But to actually be a member here at Providence, there are some requirements. And the, the, the bulk, I mean, the, the basis of them is basically you must be, have a true confession and you must have a true and be a true confessor. Have a true confession and be a true confessor. And what does that mean? A true confession is like a right understanding of the gospel. You, you understand what the gospel is. And you really believe it. Because it's, I mean, obviously, if you don't believe it, you're not a Christian. Right? That's obvious to everybody. But also, like, what do you believe? 
if you believe, you know, well, you know, I try to live a good life and I do more good than bad and, and you know, that makes me okay with, with God. I'm a pretty good person. Uh, God is love. I, I pray, you know, things like that. That's not an understanding of the gospel. That's not, like, you can have faith in that, but it's incorrect. I mean, there's lots of people who have faith all over, the wor- all over the world. It's what is your faith in? If it's not in the right thing, a true confession, a basic understanding of the gospel, well, then that, that can't save you. And you're like, well, what is a basic understanding of the gospel? Well, a basic understanding of the gospel is just this, that compared to the holiness of God, you're not a good person. You're, you're a sinner. You've failed. All of us. Like, that's what the Bible teaches. It's not like good people and bad people. No, we're all in the bad people camp. We are all sinners. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. That's the bad news. The good news of the gospel is that God so loved the world that he gave his only son to come to our rescue. So he came and he lived the perfect, sinless life that none of us have. And then he paid the penalty that all of us deserve for our sin. His substitutionary death on the cross. And then he rose again. He resurrected from the grave. In victory over sin and death. And through faith in him and what he's done. What, what Jesus has done. Not, not what we do. What Jesus has done in faith in him. That's how we are saved. That's a true confession. God's holy. I'm a sinner. Jesus came to rescue me. I put my faith in him to be what makes me right before God and justifies me before God. That's a true confession. Basic understanding of that. And really believe it. And what Paul is calling us to is like, like that's the starting point. And Paul's saying here that that's the starting point. And then we are to move on to, verse 13, mature manhood. To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. What's that mean? Living like Christ. Being ever increasingly Christ-like. Truly being Christian. Because what that word means when it was first thrown out in Antioch, you know, 2,000 years ago, was little Christs. That's what Christians are to be. We're to be little Christ. We're to look like our Savior. We're to walk in those things in verse 2. Humility and gentleness and patience. Bearing with one another in love. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. We're to be little Christ. We're to look like that. We're to look like the fruit of the Spirit. And so let's just do a little heart check for a minute. Does your life, your talk, your walk, your social media interactions, your interactions at church, your interactions at work, do they reflect a heart of love? Joy. How are you doing with that? Peace. Are you a peaceable person? Patience. Kindness. Would, would kindness mark you? Like as, as we are seeking to be little Christs, all these things mark 
Christ. Does kindness mark you? Does goodness mark you? Gentleness? Faithfulness? Self-control? How are you doing on these? These are the things that, that, that that's maturity. This is what maturity is. Maturity is not just how much you know. It's not just knowledge. It's knowledge in practice. Maturity is how you live your life. It is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. That's maturity. That's what maturity looks like. And so verse 14 So that, like we're to grow in maturity, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Okay, it says no longer children. Which means outside of, again, what's happening here? You've got pastor teachers equipping so that you won't be children. And so since it says, so that you no longer be children, what that means is outside of sitting under the teaching and equipping of faithful elders, you are and will remain a child. Tossed to and fro. But that's the very reason Christ gave the gift of elders to the church, so that we would grow. And verse 15, rather than being children, we are to, verse 15, rather, again, instead of being children like verse 14, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up into every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. And so, friends, here we've returned to the, you know, verse 7 started off very broad, very corporate with all these gifts. Then it narrowed in on elders and pastors, and now it's broadened back out to all of the gifts, the corporate nature of the giving of gifts, and how every part is needed. I mean, in baseball, right, pitchers are not usually known for being really good hitters. And hitters aren't usually known for being really good pitchers. And in football, the nose tackle isn't usually the same thing as the quarterback. You don't want them playing the same position. And in basketball, you know, having five minute bowls on seven foot five people that are gangly and, and, and struggle to run, that, that's not going to go well on the basketball court either. You need a multiplicity of different gifts to make the team function in unity and, and effectiveness. And it's the same in the church. We need all of these different gifts. And some people have gifts of encouragement. Some people have gifts of administration. Some people have gifts of hospitality. On and on and on and on we could go. But the whole church has been gifted with, verse 11, the gift of elders, so that, verse 12, the church would be equipped so that, verse 13, they would advance in maturity. And I want to make sure you understand that. Who advances in maturity? 
the church, the church advances in maturity. I mean, it's crazy how much we American Christians throw on some individualized spectacles as we look to the scriptures and just read ourselves into everything. This says nothing about us maturing. Now, yes, that's a byproduct. I get that individually. But he's talking about the church here. The driving point is the congregation is to mature. Because we all have a part to play in one another's lives. We can't do this life that Christ has called us to individually. We need one another. And even though we can't gather, which has made this a little bit hard, but even though we can't gather, I mean, you see this. We need these connections. You recognize it like now that it's kind of gone, that togetherness. But then so many of you are still connecting through Zoom meetings and phone calls and texts and cards and letters and drive-by birthday parties and all these sorts of things just showing care and love and concern. I'm so proud of you all. But let's keep going until we attain it. When When we die or Jesus comes again, we press on towards maintaining unity and growing in maturity, recognizing that how that happens is very much like in and through the church for the church. And so let's continue each doing our part and together pushing towards maturity for the glory of God and our own good. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the pastors that have served me, that have cared for me, that have been patient with me, that have poured into me, that have taken time. I praise you for them, Lord. They were a gift of your grace to me. And Father, I pray that our eldership here would be a gift in a similar way to those around us. So that, Lord, we would mature as a church. Spiritual maturity. And not just head knowledge, but living it out. Looking like Christ. Walking As he did. Not in condescending self-righteousness. But in grace and mercy and love. Not accommodating sin. No, calling it out. But teaching us also about log and speck. And so, Father, help us to not look first to the world and all the problems out there, but to look first into our hearts and see all the problems in there. And move us towards maturity. That we would be more Christ-like, and you would therefore be more glorified, and this world would therefore be more helped. And so we pray this in Christ's name.
If you've never received Jesus, I talked a little bit earlier just about the basic fundamental understanding of the gospel, the bad news and the good news. If you have questions about that, I'd love to talk with you a little bit more about that. And so you can contact me via, or our elders are standing by right now, so you can, you know, talk to them right now, or you can fill that Connect card out, or you can find our website and send an email and be glad to connect and do all we can for you. But we have to respond. And so let me just ask, have you ever responded? Have you ever trusted Christ? Do so today. Trust Christ right where you're at. Place your faith in him. And then for those of you who are already believers, let's move towards maturity. Let's follow the Lord. Let's listen. To what he says to us in his word. And let's seek to obey him. And as we do, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us now and forever. You guys have a great week.